Welcome everyone to the Tim and John show. Today we are honored to have the legend G. Edward Griffin as our special guest. And I don't want to waste our precious time uh, today getting into all the details of how this man has influenced me. But uh, his book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which uh, my signed copy of it is one of my prized possessions, what is really the, uh, you know, the Bible when it comes to understanding the Federal Reserve, really understanding uh, really kind of this whole globalist plot takedown. And I couldn't really think of a better person to interview right now as all this craziness of 2020 is going on. But really my start to this journey is I was on a class that won the national competition on the Federal Reserve. And one day this guy who had his hair, you know, all the way down, uh, you know, past his pants is telling me that the Federal Reserve is private. I said, you know, there's no way I'm going to prove you wrong. Uh, long story short, he tells me to look into this book uh, or the movie uh, Freedom to Fascism. Then my fiance at the time's like, you know what? I'm sick of you looking up this stuff. Here, this will shut you up. And she buys me the book Creature from Jekyll Island, which I, you know, I read in like two or three days. Super fascinating book. And it definitely didn't shut me up. It red-pilled me. It, then it helped me understand everything else from, you know, once I understood that, then I understood the scam of, you know, climate change and then the scam of 9-11 and so many other things. It really put the pieces together. And, and it really, for me, I was like, if I had a Series 7 stockbroker's license, a Series 66, all these different uh, credentials, uh, you know, I'm a certified financial planner. If I didn't know the Fed was private, like who the heck else knows this? And this is about 11 years ago. Uh, and now everything's kind of come around full circle. And now I'm about a week away from, getting divorced from her because she's not red pilled. So if you're not, so if you're not, so what I will say is if you are not red pill or not married to somebody who, uh, you know, is, is kind to this information, I'd probably just turn off now because it really, it, you know, not everybody can handle this truth. But one of the main things, the first topic I, I want to get into today is a lot of people are asking me like, you know, hey, Tim, they're asking John this as well. You know, you must be super happy with, with President Trump because Trump has nationalized the Federal Reserve and, uh, you know, he's going to, you know, he, the only reason he doubled the balance sheet is because he's trying to bankrupt them. And I feel like there's no one better in the world to ask than Mr. G.R. Griffin when it comes to, you know, did, you know, what's, what's your stance on when people say Trump nationalized the Fed and, and this is all some big plot to bankrupt them and roll them into the treasury. And I don't want to, you know, obviously people can, you know, hear what I have to think about that, but we won't, but we want to know what you think about that, about that statement, sir. Okay, well, I wish you hadn't started with, uh, <laughs> I wish you hadn't asked that question at all, but at least to start with it is even worse. <laughs> because it's, it's a very touchy topic, isn't it? I mean, in this uh, world where we live in now, you either have to hate Trump or love Trump. There's nothing in the middle. They don't allow it. There's no debate, yeah. you know, uh, you're for him or against him. And uh, my problem is that I've, I've been around too long to take any politicians totally seriously. Uh, I know that if they're in political office, especially the higher the ladder they go, it, my experience tells me that if you put too much faith in them and what they say, and sometimes even what they do, and you're, and you're not examining, you're not being skeptical, as I learned to be after a while, it seems like almost every time five, ten years goes by, and then you look at what your, your great faith you had in this particular politician, you think, boy, that's embarrassing, you know. Because politicians are, well, politicians. And uh, most of them, not all, certainly, uh, most of them are primarily concerned with being elected and they enjoy the power and the prestige. Sometimes they'd like to do the right thing, but the right thing sometimes is colored by the size of the, of the checks that are sent to them for their campaigns. And we know, we know that at the very top, these presidential campaigns and the senatorial campaigns and even the congressional campaigns, very, very expensive things to run. 
And in order to have any chance at all of being elected, you have to have a huge amount of money and you have to have favorable press. So where is the group that has most of the money and controls the press? And if you really know anything about the way the world works today, it's the banking fraternity. That the the uh, press is heavily uh, invested by these firms and their subsidiaries, life insurance companies, which they control, and the big corporations and so forth. And look on the board of directors of the media companies. There's always a couple of bankers from the big banks there. And you think, hmm, I wonder if I need to take a red pill on this sort of thing. And sure enough, if you do, you find out that nobody, and I mean nobody, gets the the press coverage that they need uh, in a way, and I'll come back to the word in a way in a moment, in a way that uh, allows the candidate to have any, cha uh, any chance of being elected unless they've made deals. They've made deals with the, the financial industry in some way or another. Now, having said all that, I've learned to be very careful uh, about endorsing any political candidate, even the ones I really like. And I think, I watch this guy. Is he going to weaken at the last minute like so many of them do? They always say the right thing, but when it comes push to shove, when it comes, comes time to that vote or to sign that document, well, it's turned around at the very last minute. I'm sure that I've witnessed that probably 500 to 1,000 times since I've been aware of politics, where the guy that I thought was the defender of my position in the end either caved in or was really there in the first place so that uh, he would throw the fight. And that's a harsh thing to say, but I've seen it over and over and over again. So now, you ask me about Mr. Trump. Could he be in this category? I don't know, but I'm not just going to go out and say, hooray for Mr. Trump because he said all these good things, and he did a few good things, actually, which for the most part were undone very soon thereafter. But I'm just, I, I'm going to answer your question by saying I'm, I'm, I'm very curious and I'm, I'm uh, open-minded. I'm not willing to take a firm stand yet because the, the game isn't over yet. And I think of a couple of things that, um, that bother me. So, I'm, and these are the things that make my question mark get very, very, very big, is these things that bother me. What, what bothers me? Well, let's see if I can pick a couple of dandies. The first thing that bothers me is that I remember early in the campaign, presidential campaign, when everybody thought, who is this guy, Donald Trump? Well, he's kind of a, kind of a clown, you know? He's, he's got, look at his hairdo, and he's always puffing around, and he's, he says things that don't make any sense, and he's posturing, and he's, he's got this, uh, this line, you're fired, he makes himself to look like a big uh, you know, entrepreneur and so forth. So I thought, well, but he's kind of a, an actor, you know? He's a clown. Nobody's going to elect him for president. And then I saw his a news, a news report on the back page of one of the papers. was well, not front page news, which I thought it should have been, where Mr. Trump spent a day with Henry Kissinger. I thought, what? Mr. Trump spent a day with Henry Kissinger, a whole day with Henry Kissinger. What the heck was that all about? So I started to think, what could that have been about? Well, he probably just wanted to touch all the bases. He's running for office. He probably went over to see Mr. Kissinger uh, because he wanted to uh, see if he couldn't whip up some support. Now, the, you have to know the background on that because Kissinger is the bag man for the Rockefellers. Uh, when Rockefeller wants to speak, he usually doesn't speak directly. He speaks through Mr. Kissinger. That's always been Kissinger's role. And so when Trump went to meet with Kissinger, I thought he was meeting with the Rockefellers. At least may, may not have been present in the room, but whatever Kissinger was going to say was approved by or mandated by the Rockefellers. 
But what would they be talking about? And then I remembered even earlier in the campaign that uh, Mr. Trump told us why we should vote for him. His opening reason in those days to vote for him is because he's a deal maker, he said. I'm a deal maker. I know how to make deals. He said, I make deals. I work with anybody. I can work with anybody. My object is to get the job done. I don't care about what people believe or what side they're on. They're all good guys. They, well, you can work with them. They can all be bad guys. And well, he's true on that. He's right on that one. He said, but I make deals. And I thought, gee, that's, I don't want to vote for somebody that makes deals. I want to vote for somebody that stands on principle and doesn't make deals, you know? <laughs> but that's the problem with politics because you think that if you're a politician, you have to make deals. Otherwise, you're going to fail. And that's part of the problem with our political system because that's partly true also. So I put the two together and I said, oh, I get it. Mr. Trump went to talk to Kissinger slash Rockefeller to make a deal. Well, what deal? What could the deal possibly be? Well, I never have known the answer to that question. But I, ever since then, I had this suspicion that a deal was made. And so now you're asking me, indirectly, what you're really asking me, do I think that possibly what we see happening is the deal that, um, or part of the deal that Mr. Trump made with uh, Kissinger? And my only answer is, I don't know, but it's possible. And what would the deal be? Uh, here's where it gets rough. I have observed my... I, I call him the enemy. This is a group of people, a large group of people. Some of them don't even, most of them don't even know each other. But they all are bound together by a common ideology called collectivism. And they're determined, come hell or high water, to convert this planet to a, a collectivist beehive with themselves as the queen bee running everything. And um, they, they all, you know, help each other. And um, so, and, and I know that one of their, not one, the most powerful weapon they have had to be successful over all these decades, and this goes back over well over 100 years, the most powerful weapon they have had is called controlled opposition. Time and time again, they, I'll give you an example, the Federal Reserve System. So, on which I have some knowledge, I spent a lot of time studying about it. And one of the things that hit me like a freight train was that the Federal Reserve, the boys, the big bankers, let's call them that, uh, before it was the Federal Reserve, they saw that Congress was moving into position to pass some kind of legislation, banking reform legislation, they called it. They always called it reform. No matter how bad it is, it's always reform. And they were going to control those big bad bankers because the public was really upset and concerned about the, the operations of the banks. They were failing. They were not keeping their promises. People lost their money in the banks. There were runs on the bank. Everybody was unhappy with the banks with good reason. And so there was a hue and cry to generate a piece of legislation. Banking reform was going to be passed by Congress. And the idea was that Congress was going to control those big bad bankers and bring them in line so they will serve the people for a change. So that was the whole idea, you say. That's how most legislation is sold, by the way. But this, I'm talking about the Federal Reserve. It was really sold that way. So the bankers said to themselves, in essence, look, guys, we're going to have some legislation that's going to control our industry. Should we just sit around and wait for somebody to draft up some real legislation that's going to control us? Heck no. We will get at the head of the parade. We will demand reform legislation. We will write the bill. We will bring it to be, and it'll be exactly what we want, and everybody will think that it was to control us, when in fact it was to control everybody, to keep them from meddling with our industry. 
we will form a cartel. That's basically what happened on Jekyll Island, that they came to all of these decisions. They didn't use those words exactly, but if you understand what they were doing and you read what they did say about what they were doing, you understand that they were creating a cartel. And then they would pass this cartel agreement off to Congress as an act of Congress. They took the word cartel agreement off of it and put Federal Reserve Act at the top of it. And the idiots in Congress voted it into law. And so now we have a cartel agreement written by the bankers themselves to protect their industry. To heck with the people. That wasn't their purpose. It was to protect their industry. And Congress uh, legalized it, made it an act of, 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 of law. And now you and I have to abide by a cartel, private cartel agreement or we go to prison. And that's why most people think that the Federal Reserve is a federal government agency because it has the power to put you in, into prison. And only governments can do that, right? Well, wrong. Private cartels can also do that if they get the Congress to vote into a law or a cartel agreement. So I, I remember that uh, they led their own opposition brilliantly. And look what happened when we got the Federal Reserve as a result of that. And everybody was so grateful to Congress. Oh, look, the, these guys that promoted the Federal Reserve Act were our heroes because they were going to fight those banks. They were going to nail them to the wall where they're our heroes. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I could go down the list. This happens over and over and over again. It happens in politics. It happens in candidates. How many times do we see somebody come up as a political candidate on a platform and they have no intention of fulfilling that platform. We've seen some of those revealed. People have had hidden microphones and they, and they get letters out of the file where people say, are you kidding? No, that's not what we believe, but we have to tell the bumpkins that what we believe in order to get elected. This is controlled opposition. And the American people can't even think of that because they're such honest and, and they, they think that, you know, they go to church on Sunday and they say, thou shalt not lie and so forth. But they don't realize that the rules of politics is thou shalt must lie, you know, in order to be elected. So having all that background is my handicap. So when I look at any politician, it's not just Mr. Trump, but any politician, I never listen to what they say. I only look at what they do, and even then, I don't look at the short-term consequences. I see if they continue doing it, or if they do it only so long as to get the publicity of being on a certain side of an issue, and then they walk away from it and leave it behind. Now, that's my handicap. That's why I have trouble answering your question with this, a simple yes or no, or he's a good guy or a bad guy. I am suspicious. Not just be suspicious of Mr. Trump, but suspicious of everybody, because you have to be. You know what they say, vigilance is the price of liberty. And so I don't take anybody at face value. I only look at their deeds and, their, and uh, what they do. And when I see Mr. Trump standing up there and saying, yeah, where are these, uh, these vaccines? It's a good thing the vaccines are coming and we got the military ready to make sure everybody gets the vaccines and all of that. When I see him, when he turns around on the, on the uh, immigration issue, we got to stop this illegal immigration. And by golly, he did. He made it legal. He didn't stop the immigration. He just converted it from illegal to legal. How many people notice these things? You know, everything that he does seems to somehow go sour. Now we come to the real thing. What I'm really suspicious about or worried about, I should say, is we know that the end game for our opposition is martial law. It's a society based on martial law, totalitarianism. So we know that they are hoping and working toward martial law. And the only way that they're going to get martial law with the acceptance of the American people is if there's a lot of violence in the streets, a lot of terror, a lot of bloodshed in the street. They're trying to develop race war. 
There's no basis for it, but they're working hard to do it. All the rhetoric, they've got their, their actors up there. There's a group, I'm going to guess, a couple of thousand actors in the Antifa and the Black Lives Matter group. They're all admitting that they're trained Marxists, right? They're not interested in, in a racial issue. They're trained Marxists, they said. That means they, they're working for world domination, the installation of collectivism, the destruction of sovereignty of all nations, the creation of a one-world government, so to speak, based on the model of collectivism. That's what they say that they're working for, not these other things that are the slogans that we see on television. So, and we know that they're paid. This is not a grassroots movement. This is a funded movement. And it all comes from where? Two sources, the deep state and Mr. Soros. Keep that in mind. Mr. Soros is primarily the one that's funding all of the violence that we see, not only in America, but in a lot of countries around the world. It's the Soros money that's doing it. So the question might rise in your mind like it does in mine. Uh, Mr. President, why don't you do something about Mr. Soros? He's violating so many laws, I can't even count them. He's out there. We know the source of all of this is primarily funded by Mr. Soros. Why are you going to cocktail parties with Mr. Soros? Why don't you do something about Mr. Soros? Why is it during your campaign, I've got a recording of this that I found and put, downloaded it to my computer, he's on the campaign, campaign trail and somebody in the audience says, Mr. Mr. Trump, um, why don't you, don't, what do you think we should do about Mr. Soros? He's funding all of this violence and revolution. And his words, so help me, he said, oh, poor Mr. Soros, leave him alone. He's got enough troubles that it is. Next question. These things bother me because they fit the pattern of controlled opposition. Getting back now to the question, is it possible that the whole reason for Mr. Trump and his deal, is it possible, is to be the guy that calls for martial law? And meanwhile, why doesn't he do something now to stop the violence in the street? Why, why are all these mayors and governors not doing anything to stop it, but just standing by and letting it happen? Is because you can, this I can guarantee you, it's because they want the violence. And why do they want the violence? To scare the dickens out of the American people so they'll say, oh, please, Mr. President, please give us martial law. Now there, that's not what you wanted to hear, but that's what I'm afraid might happen. Is it? Am I, con am I absolutely certain that this is true? No, I'm not. But I'm very, very suspicious. Thank you for that, that answer. And just so people know out there, I was a gigantic Trump fan going into all this and reached, you know, about 10% of what the Russians did by myself before Facebook shadow banned me and had a life-size cutout of, of Donald Trump. But then when I saw him put in guys like Gary Cohn, uh, who is, you know, a big carbon tax guy, Hillary Bundler as the national economic advisor. And then when I saw him put in Jerome Powell, who, you know, basically is a Janet Yellen disciple, I knew that right out of the gates that, okay, everything I fought for was just lost. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people, and this is not, you know, and it certainly didn't, you know, win me a lot of fans. And so I do, you know, appreciate, you know, your honesty and all of this stuff is that when it came to, you know, like the, the greater Q movement, I had people who basically just discovered the deep state two years ago who are now saying, oh, you've got to trust the plan, even though my initials are trust the plan, TTP, and you don't know what you're talking about. And this is all. And so when I would point out things like Gary Cohn, you know, as the economic advisor and point out, uh, you know, all these other inconsistencies, I was told that I was the bad guy and that, you know, I'm not as smart as Donald Trump. And so I, I think it's almost like the greatest psyop, well, besides the whole pandemic we have going on, the greatest psyop that's ever really been perpetuated because there's a, I seem like there's a lot of 
true information in the Q movement, but it's ultimately designed to shut people up like, like us, because, it, you know, and I'm not rooting against Trump. And, and I think he's done a lot of great things compared to, you know, some of our other options that we had had over there. And, and I'm more of the voluntarist. It doesn't really even matter even voting almost at this point. Uh, but where do you stand on the, I don't know if you've heard of people bring up to you like the Nasara Jasara movement, and there's going to be this quantum financial system and, and all it hinges on Trump getting reelected and all the pedophiles are going to be put away. And, and it seems like there's a people who are from our movement got sidetracked into this other movement where now we've been fractured and, and it almost seems like the truth movement or whatever you want to call it is, is almost weaker now than it, than it's ever been because it's, it's so fractured. And that's because of Trump getting elected that there's always this greater plan. And so I imagine that you're probably aware of the QAnon movement. And, and it's probably another question. I, 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 the questions will get easier after this. I wanted to, you know, start off with two of the, two of the tough, <laughs> tougher ones up front because people would, it's easy because it's, it's constant, because it's, it's been the greatest consternation is just people constantly asking me this and then always thinking I'm wrong on it. And so with you being, you know, sort of the godfather of, and I also want to point out for people, I forgot to mention this, October 10th and 11th is the Red Pill Conference down in Jekyll Island, Georgia. Jekyll Island being the, island where the bankers hatched this whole plan uh, and you had talked about you know all this uh, you know reverse psychology that was going on and at the time jp morgan owned basically all the all the major newspapers and said this is the greatest this would be the worst thing ever happened to big banks when it was the big banks that wrote this legislation so you know if, if you guys are within earshot of jekyll island down in georgia i would make sure you guys get there the tickets aren't aren't that expensive at all uh and and who knows how many more opportunities we're going to have to have a red pill conference at jekyll island so make sure you is the website is redpill.org uh, is that the website mr griffin it's a it's a redpillexpo.org yeah so so make sure you guys head to redpillexpo.org uh, you'll also see it on the uh, on the scroller you know reminding you guys to go to the red pill but but getting back to you know the the greater truth movement the QAnon movement is there have you had formed any opinions on what you think of that or is that another part of the psyop uh, uh, and you know kind of deception controlled opposition that, that you've been talking about I'll start with the short answer. It's yes. Okay. Uh, that's exactly what I think it is. And I have some reason for that. First of all, it makes sense. Often, if I get confused and I, I don't know how to figure it out, I often sit back and think, what would I do if my loyalties were on the other side and I were making the decisions? I've read their stuff I, over the years. I've read just about every training manual, every philosophical statement, every strategic idea that they've ever come up with. I'm a, I'm a freak for that kind of stuff, so I know how they think. And so I ask myself, what would I do thinking like they do? And it, usually what I come up with is exactly what they're doing or very close to it. And the, the key to all of that is to, well, it's controlled opposition in a way. It, it's to make people think that the very thing that's worst for them is in their best interest. What's worse for the American people right now? It's to do nothing. Sit back and let the thing just play out. And there's, I don't think there's much of a greater impetus or motivation to do nothing than to have the conviction that it's all going to be taken care of for you. People are implanted deep in the government, the good guys, the white hats, the sh knights in shining armor. They're there, and any day now, they're going to start arresting these pedophiles, and they're, I mean, they're already arresting them. We can't tell you who, but they're already arresting them, and somebody, we can't, we can't find them on the Internet. Did you notice that? So they're probably arrested, and things like that, and we're going to throw Hillary in jail. I know Mr. Trump promised in his campaign that he was going to throw Hillary in jail, and everybody that said, yeah, well, Hillary's not in jail, 
And the last time I heard anything from Mr. Trump, he said, oh, leave her alone. She's okay. So that, that went by and by. So uh, back to this thing, um, I almost lost my track again. I get so sidetracked. I get so <laughs> narrowed up on this. We're talking about, help me out with this, please. Uh, we were back with... Um, we were talking about our Q and being uh, being our Q, a, a yeah, thank you, yeah, Q, Q and psyops, yeah. So that that I shouldn't have lost track of that because that was a part of my deep part of my life, back in the seventies. Uh, there was an exact parallel mirror image of the QAnon movement um, that occurred in those days under the name of the the White Dove. The White Dove was an unknown anonymous character that had inside information deep inside the government at all levels, military, Supreme Court, uh, intelligence agencies, the Dove had these contacts. And almost every day they were leaking information, little tidbits of information were being leaked out, saying, yeah, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And sure enough, in many cases, it did happen. Well, that wasn't too mysterious because I could have told you what was going to happen in the next day or two or the next week too, just because that was the trend. But people hung on every word because the dove said, everything is taken care of. In any day now, there will be a big announcement and you'll be thrown back on your heels. That we're going to recover all of the gold that was stolen from the American people and hidden away, stolen by these bad people. We're going to get the gold back into the treasury, pay off the national debt. Uh, we're going to arrest all of these criminals and restore the Constitution. And then they had a piece of legislation called Nassara. Nassara, that this is the legislation that's going to be passed and it's going to replace the Federal Reserve System. And that's how I got into it. So I looked up Nassara and it was a, a real genuine piece of legislation. Uh, and it, but it had not yet been introduced to Congress. It was proposed. I think it was introduced, but it wasn't on the docket for a vote or anything like that. And I did some research on it and I found out the, the bill was written not by a congressman or anybody like that. It was written by a, an engineer, a private citizen. And he was a very serious student of monetary issues. And he had written a bill which he thought in his mind was going to uh, eliminate fiat money and return the United States to a solid gold-backed system. And he had all kinds of bells and whistles on it. So he and I got into an, an exchange, a debate in a way, a very friendly debate. I liked the guy. He was very serious. He was not a nutcase at all. But I took the stance. I said, I just want to tell you why I'm not enthusiastic about your bill. Because, as I recall, the basic flaw, that so many of them are the same, is that they come up with a different formula. The old formula doesn't work, so they have a new formula that's going to work, supposedly. And I said, as long as these formulas are there and they're going to be reinforced by human beings, and if those human beings have the power to enforce them or not to enforce them or to even change them, you're not going to change the system at all because it's the temptation uh, to control the money system that corrupts human beings. And also it's the same temptation that allows uh, evil forces to put forth their controlled opposition. So you're not going to solve the system simply by fiddling with the, the numbers. You've got to get people out of the equation and return the money to a, a free market concept, not a controlled, politically determined concept. So we were, that was the basis, main basis of our disagreement. And then one day in the middle of all that, with people saying, don't worry about it, Griffin, you're wasting your time. The white dove tells us this, the white dove tells us that it's going to happen. Don't do anything. Don't rock the boat. One day, I opened up the newspaper, and there it was. The white dove was discovered who she was. It was a woman, and uh, she was living in a trailer in the Midwest 
someplace, and she and her boyfriend had uh, some uh, legal charges against them for fraud. They, they were uh, guilty of fraud in some real estate deals, and she was a complete fraud herself on this whole thing. She was just having fun with it. I suspect maybe somebody sent her some money to keep her going. You can only imagine who that might be. I'm not sure that she knew what she was doing in terms of weakening the, uh, the defenses of this country. I have no reason to believe that. But anyway, she was a fraud, and then that was the end of all of that uh, Nassara business and um, the White Dove and the White Knights and all the, the they're coming to save you. Do nothing. Okay, now QAnon comes along. Almost everything that I just told you about the White Dove is found there, only in spades. It's, it's done much pro more professionally now. But the message is still the same. The bad people are going to be arrested. There are good guys everywhere in the government. Don't worry. Just relax, folks. It's all being taken care of. Just wait for our next email, and you'll find out what we're telling you, and do nothing. Please, remember, do nothing. And I... Oh, no, I, I'm not going for this. And by the way, they, they're still talking about Nasera. I saw that the other day. Nasera, the bill, is, gonna, is going to reform the Federal Reserve. So that's still in place. So when you ask me, what do I think about it? I'll, I have to clean up my language. I'll just say it's nonsense. Well, I'm, it would be a pretty awkward uh, rest of the conversation if you said otherwise, because I'm of, a, of the exact same opinion. And I'm just actually flabbergasted that it was actually that Nassara was even going back all the way into your days. I'd never heard of the White Dove before, so that was absolutely fascinating insight. But I, I will say that it seems like the power structure is getting desperate because the, it seems like QAnon is waking people up but it's waking people up and diverting them at like the exact wrong, like they're, they're, they're taking the wrong, instead of, you know, taking That's action it. on That's the formula. Divide and conquer. Yeah. 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 Just yeah, like the of, federal reserve, the banker said, look, there's going to be legislation. Let us control it. That, <laughs> yeah, they had to do something They passed a bill. And of course I'll make another analogy and then we maybe can get something that's less controversial. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. those two, I lose my last two friends if we keep this up. <laughs> uh, it, it reminds me of, of when I was a boy and television had just come out and my grandmother, uh, I was staying with my grandmother quite a bit and uh, she was a great television fan in the afternoons because that was when professional wrestling was on. <laughs> and my grandmother was a wrestling uh, uh, fan. So she never missed a wrestling match on television. And so I had to sit and watch a lot of those when I was with my grandmother. Of course, I was a kid. I was thrown, I was in, uh, in, engrossed in it too because these guys were throwing each other around the ring, beating on each other. Every once in a while, one would get thrown out of the ring and land in the chairs. And I thought, oh man, that must have hurt. And then I you know, found out in later years that wrestling, professional wrestling was a show. And quite often those two wrestlers in there were both owned by the same trainer and owner. It was the same company. And they were told, guys, I'll go out there and do one heck of a fight. Now really make it look good. And that means they were expected to pound each other. They couldn't just, you know, throw pillows. They had to throw punches. And once in a while, one gets out in the ring and so forth. And, the, of course, the audience went wild when this happened. If they just punched around and so forth and didn't hurt each other, well, nobody would come to watch it. Um, so politics is the same way. And we understand that the same financial and academic interests really control both political parties. I don't think anybody questions that. And yet they still think that when the election time comes, that there's going to be a big difference between the candidates or the party platforms. Well, the platforms may read entirely different, but you'll notice no matter who is in office, Republican or Democrat, then Republican again, and then Democrat, look at the past record since World War I, and you'll find that the, the major policies of the nation have never changed. 
the policies remain the same, even though the faces and the political labels change. So if you just look at politics and realize that the candidates, I mean, you look at the wrestling match and you look at politics and realize that the candidates have to beat up on each other. They have to do that or the show won't work. People won't think they're participating in their own political destiny. They won't think they're really making a choice unless they really bash each other. Keep that in mind. Yeah, no, it comes back to also, you were talking about the Treasury being national. I know the Federal Reserve being nationalized, but look at what they did with the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which is the secret slush fund that they used to manipulate currencies with. You know, they had, uh, uh, of course, BlackRock become a, a, you know, the dealer that took over and actually they get paid pretty well. I looked at the actual deal uh, in between them, and I think they make some one something percent per you know deal that they make of uh, the the corporate and bonnie TF bailout that they're doing right now, like the SMCCF and uh, PMCCF, I think they're called. And and as you see, you know, like you got BlackRock in there. Well, if if the if the the Fed is getting nationalized, why is BlackRock being working with the Treasury to bail out uh, bail out uh, <laughs> bail out uh, themselves basically and others uh, in in the field you know like well yeah we're coming after those bankers but again the bankers are in there you know making deals for themselves that they highly benefit from so it, it, it's just uh, you know it's interesting how people are led you know as you said Ed to to believe these things because they, they're putting on a really good show for us of yeah. course like it's, I, it's, my yeah. comment to what you just said is amen brother you said it correctly yeah. but what's really happening is that the the banks aren't being aren't being nationalized, but the government is being privatized. Yeah, that's really what happened. Is the private industries have taken control of the government? The government isn't controlling anything anymore. Yeah. It's all no. controlled by these. <laughs> so, me. Yeah. so it's all controlled by these hidden forces. Yeah, it's a revolving door. <laughs> in yeah. in uh, many, you know, you'd cover that very well. Uh, Tim, do you have any more questions there? I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely we got probably a million questions, but I, want, I don't want to keep that forever, obviously. <laughs> but uh, when I mean, yeah. I mean, I did hear you on the Ernest Hancock show the other day, uh, and you were talking about how basically your ideal version of, a, I guess, a system of governance would be what you would call a protectorate versus a government. And I want to see if you could if you could let the audience know what a protectorate is versus a government when it. Yeah, thanks for that. It's one of my favorite topics, really, because I believe that the solution to most of the problems that we're talking about and problems of the day that people are concerned about really are not going to be solved so much by legislation, passing new legislation or unpassing or you know removing old legislation, unless we understand the ideological foundation upon which those decisions are being made. It cannot be just, well, is it good or bad? Everybody's definition of what is good and what is bad depends on how it benefits them versus the people who are paying for it and all these different things. But if we have an ideological foundation uh, that is really clear in our minds, that we can use that as the, as the rule, the gyroscope, to make all of these other decisions on the basis of principle, not on the basis of who does it help, what does it cost, how long is it going to take. All those things are secondary to the basic question of the, is it something that should be done for other reasons? And what are the other reasons? Um, well, the foundation, I think, of an understanding of what the state should do. I started to say government, but I'll come back to that in a minute. What's the foundation of what the state should be able to do and what it should not be able to do. Most people have never even thought about that. They just 
think, as I did was I, when I was in school, they think that, well, we live in a democracy, don't we? So 51% of the vote, is, the, is that's the great rule, 51. If 51% of the people want something, well, that's what you're going to get. That's the right thing because it has the numbers. I thought it was a mathematical thing. And then I, I learned to ask some questions later on. I started to think, well, what about a, a lynch mob? Well, there's only one dissenting vote, and he's at the end of the rope. So the numbers are working there, but is a lynch mob correct? Oh, no, I didn't like that idea. So I had to eventually, that was the beginning of my long journey to discover that it wasn't a question of numbers at all. It was a question of principles. So what are the principles? And it took me a lo practically my first half of my adult career in this issue to, to figure that out. I read all the works of, of the great thinkers of the past, tried to put all this together, and it finally dawned on my, me one day that all government or the state is, is the legalized use of coercion. It's the use of power, use of force. The state is, represents the power to harm people legally and to kill them legally if necessary. For what purpose? Well, it's not just what 51% of the population wants. It better not be that because that's the basis of a pure democracy, and that's one of the reasons democracies always fail. But anyway, so what is it? And well, some authors had this idea, some had that idea, and finally I pulled them all together, and it dawned on me one day, this is it. The state and all the elected representatives, the appointed representatives in the state that have this power to use force, where do they get that power, that authority? Well, in an enlightened society, we like to say it comes from the people. It used to come from the conqueror with the sword. That's where it came from. But no, now we think, no, it comes from the people. The people give this right to those elected representatives to do that thing. So if that's the system we want to live under, and I think it is the system, uh, we have to ask, well, what do individuals have the right to do that for? What do I have a right to kill a person for? That's pretty extreme. Why, what do I have a right to strike a person or to injure them in any way? What, do I have a right to make a slave of them, imprison them, put them into a box, and whatever I want to, including killing? Well, the answer is very clear, darn little. Let's just say darn little. Well, what? How little? And it comes to this. In the defense of life and liberty. Nobody would ever challenge your right or mine to kill someone if they were trying to kill us and we were merely defending our life. A few people might question that, I suppose, but not. Except that. for in Norway. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe in Norway. Yeah, they'll stand up and say, well, go ahead and shoot me. I won't defend myself. I don't. No, that's, it's not human nature. And, and slavery is the same way. If somebody tries to lock you into their basement and make you serve them for the rest of your life, you're gonna, you would be justified to kill them if necessary to regain your, your uh, independence and your freedom. And I think these, these are issues that are well understood. So this, these are the reasons or the justification for us using coercion, lethal coercion if necessary, against other human beings. So those are the only things that we can give to the state and allow those guys with the badges on their shirts and the guns on their hips. Those are the only reasons they can uh, use lethal force, is to defend life and liberty. That's it. Anything beyond that is illegal or immoral and illogical. Let's put all of those words to it. And so my idea that the proper function of the state is not to govern, 
it's to protect. But unfortunately, for as long as anybody can remember, they called the state the government. Well, so the, the word itself salts the argument. You say, what kind of a government do you want? You've used the wrong word because they're all bad, because they're all beyond the extent of what I just said. You don't want to be governed. I don't want to be governed. But I want the state to protect me, to protect my life and my liberty. And so, therefore, I think the starting point for an intelligent discussion of what kind of a state do we want is to use the right word. If we had the kids in school asking the question, well, what kind of a protectorate should we have instead of what kind of a government should we have, we, I think we'd be halfway to the right answer right there because we'd be talking about things that protect instead of things that govern. And so that's why I am hoping to earn some popularity for the word protectorate in that sense to distinguish it from a government. No, I can say I don't want a government and not be an anarchist because I, I'm saying also that I want to replace governments which govern, which with social and political institutions which cannot govern but can protect, protect my life and my liberty and my property, then we've got a system I think that everybody would endorse. And so that's the ideological base behind my preference for the use of the word a protectorate over government. But now that's not the end of the story because having just defined it and described it, you still have a tremendous uh, uh, challenge to make it work that way. You have to devise uh, mechanisms to make sure that it isn't metamorphed back into a government because people have to watch for it. You know, the eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. You, you, I don't care how good your constitution is. Ours was pretty darn good, I might, th I might add, especially for a beta model. But nobody paid any attention to it. We thought, well, it'll take care of itself. No pieces of paper with written words do not take care of themselves. You need human beings that understand the meanings of those words and who are willing to dedicate their lives to protect the, the meanings of those words, make sure that everybody understood what they meant. And it's an educational campaign when you come right down to it. It's not a battle of, of guns and bullets. It's a battle, a battle for the mind. And just, you know, it kind of brings me back to when George W. Bush said, asked someone, asked him if something was constitutional, and he just said that's a GD piece of paper. Uh, I forgot, maybe I forgot what exactly that was in reference to. But uh, yeah, just awesome insights into that. And speaking of the government, speaking of protector, what do you see as the biggest, you know, sort of threat facing mankind right now? I mean, you know, it's, it's 2020. It seems like everything is, you know, sort of in play right now in, in terms of, you know, contact tracing and, you know, getting us on this digital surveillance grid where eventually all of the money is going to be, you know, in sort of like a Bitcoin Federal Reserve type dollar that's, you know, that they'll eventually shut people like you and I off, uh, especially, you know, once they, you know, catch wind of the fact that we're, you know, talking with each other. And, and so, you know, do you see that as the greatest threat or Russia or China or something else that it's all, you know, really in your you know, in all of your infinite wisdom of everything that's, that you've seen throughout your years and been able to accurately call and predict, and you know, we're in this perilous time right now, where do you see things going? And, and is there any hope? And, uh, you know, because it is, you know, it's quite the series of events that are going on right now. And, and really, it's outside, if I would have told anybody that, that this was going on, you know, let's say in, you know, in January that we'd be in this state now, everyone would have, would have laughed. And, uh, and, and I thought things were going to get pretty bad and that there would be a big corporate bond market blow up and the Fed would have to come in and buy the corporate bond market. But they even blew away my expectations in their opening salvo of this. And, uh, 
and really, where do you see things going and what, what do you see as the biggest threat? And, and is there any optimism that, you know, we should be able to have, uh, sir? Tim, yeah, there are some layers to that question. I hope I can uh, keep them in mind. The first thing is the greatest threat. I don't think it's uh, terrorism or, or uh, the virus or economic collapse, no matter how bad those are, and they certainly are. The greatest threat to the survival of liberty is the fact that the channels of information are in the hands of our opponents. And they control information. They control what people think, therefore. That means they can control people's actions. And in fact, I just came across a quote I had never seen before from Voltaire. See if I could remember it. He said that if someone can convince you of an absurdity, they can convince you to commit an atrocity. <laughs> I thought, wow, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Yeah, if they can control our thinking and give us faulty data, we can in our hearts and souls come to the conclusion that our greatest friends are our greatest enemies, that they're demons. And we'll think that our greatest demon enemies are our friends. And we will commit atrocities because we'll think we're doing the right thing. So until that equation is rebalanced to where it should be, I, don't, I, I can't place anything else above that. Because that is the, the genesis of all solutions, is to have correct information. It's why it's so critically important that we fight and never give up trying to keep open our channels of communication. It's not to say that everything we come up with is accurate or true. We try very hard, but every once in a while, you know, slip. But it's mostly true, and it's, it's not intended to deceive like the other side. It's 99% of the information that comes from the other side is intended to deceive. So we have to keep our channels open, and we can't, once that is completely closed down, I think it's gonna be a very long period of time in history before freedom comes up again from the ground up. And we're so not very far away from that, sorry. And, and no, I know with Josh Seegerson, his biggest thing isn't the fact they've taken away all his money, his biggest thing is the fact that he can't even get the information out because we've been shadow banned. And, and I know I've been shadow banned on Facebook over 99.9%. And and, uh, and it's just, you know, in the future, there's not gonna, I had a lot of hope in 2016 because I was able to reach these people and it wasn't about me reaching people, it was about me being able to teach other people how to reach people. But now they've completely cut that off. They've taken all, I mean, Hillary Clinton said, you know, we're in an information war and we're losing that war. And so they're losing the war and, and now the internet's gotten away from them they, they're you know, really getting their, their clutches yeah. and so you know in the future we might not be able to find you know books like like yours especially when everything goes digital and we're not going to be allowed to and it's you know a very scary time so yeah, i completely agree with you sorry about that yeah well i think it doesn't take but a moment's contemplation and we can see that that is the the crux of the of the matter right there the military has a word for that i think or a phrase i think it's called uh, information dominance so when they're trying, they're trying to uh, influence or uh, completely take over a geographical area, their first step is to get a strong step, a handhold in or complete control of the channels of communication. That's why, frankly, throughout history, ever since we've had the printing press and then the electronic media, the first thing a, a tyrant has to do is control the means of, a means of communication. So that, the, I mean, even more important than controlling the military and the police, which <laughs> used to be the first thing yeah. they went for. Now they go for the information channels. Operation so anyway, paper that's clips. it. Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, Mockingbird, Mockingbird, I meant Operation Mockingbird, Mockingbird, where they were in all the various uh, you know news agencies. Sorry, John, what were you saying? Yeah, no, the, we're in the, we're in a modern version of that today, and with you know social media and everything. But it it all comes down to you know there are overreaching goals, as you said, you know the the collectivism that's out there, and and it, it's just to look at a recent World Bank report, uh, you know where. All the way at the end, you know, where you got tired of reading all this stuff, they were talking about how they need to have the uh, 25 IDA uh, countries to implement pandemic uh, preparedness control. So that's an overarching goal. But if you read far enough down, uh, it's called the relevance of two higher level objectives. And of course, at the end, well, what comes up there, you know, it's... uh, it is, of course, the uh, sustainable development goals. And, and uh, you know, yet again, you know, one more time, you know, the biggest problem that I see, Ed, and I, I, I think you might uh, agree with this because you read a book on it, is, uh, of course, the overreaching, you know, the global governance that we structured, that we created, you know, through very long time now with uh, the United Nations. You know, it's basically an organization that have, you know, built itself to be a um, fully functional uh, governance structure, you know, uh, as a government on a global basis, you know, they've taken hold, like, for example, it was just recently IATA, I, I was, re- I get emails from all these agencies, and, and they were proposing uh, vaccination passports and everything, like, and that comes from, you know, the United Nations, and uh, not a lot of people understand that, you know, a lot of these ideas, uh, and overarching, you know, ideas, we had, to, for example, here in, in Manitoba, where I live, uh, our conservative government, implemented the sustainable development uh, uh, minister uh, for the first time ever. So it just shows you, you know, the, the overarching goals are out there and they always work towards those big, uh, big goals of, you know, the, the basically, you know, having that global control and, and uh, being able to sit at top. And actually they're working right now. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the financial stability board the FSB, which is interesting. It's the same as, you know, what took over for KGB in, in, in Russia. It was, you know, now it's called FSB in Russia instead of KGB, but the FSB is also a financial institution where 20 central bankers are sitting and making decisions for the insurance industry, for banking, for, um, for the securities and for accounting. And they actually have full control uh, and actually, the one of the creators of it, another group called the G30, uh, Stuart P. McIntosh, he wrote a book called The Redesign of the F- uh, Global Financial Infrastructure to Return of State Authority. But there he said it was way better than the IMF because they don't like the IMF and the UN. There's too many cooks in the kitchen. Having 20 people make the, all the rules is way, way better. That's what it said. And that's that collectivist mentality as you were talking about, right? Yes, it's, it's, it's very interesting. A thought came to me just the other day. Uh, of how, how deep-rooted this is and how old it is. Uh, many of your listeners will remember uh, a book called Philip Drew Administrator uh, that was published uh, during the Wilson administration, I believe. And it was written by Colonel Edward Mandel House, who was the uh, sort of the, the secret uh, control over Woodrow Wilson in the White House. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, the Colonel uh, House was uh, actually one of the founders of the Council on Foreign Relations and all that. And he was, he was prom- probably the most prominent individual that brought the idea of culture and make it popular politically. And that's, that's all background. The thing is that many people didn't realize that House had uh, dreams of, of world, a world system. 
And he tried to incorporate them into a novel that he called Philip Drew Administrator. It's kind of a, a poorly written book, I thought. It was certainly not, didn't have a lot of literary uh, talent to it, but the ideas in it were very clear. And uh, the idea was simply this, that through a series of uh, crises and breakdowns, uh, the United States could be moved into coming to its senses and giving up the idea of representative government and following the sensible formula of administrative government, which is why Philip Drew was the administrator in the title and not the president. So the solution in the book was to transform America out of the old system of people uh, electing representatives who were supposed to represent the, the will and the spirit of the voters to the point where it was all done from the top down, sort of like the old system where the king established his, his chief administrators and then they selected their secondary administrators and all the way down to the local city and county levels that was all appointed all the way to the top and the citizen just had to ask one question is, who is my master? <laughs> and uh, what, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And so uh, you can see that these guys, who built their reputations around the Council on Foreign Relations all had this idea of an administrative yeah. government that we now see everywhere that everything is moving yeah. quickly into administration rather than political. Technocracy, right? Like it's the idea of, uh, you know, being able to yeah. control everything. Yeah. Every single tiny little aspect of everybody's life because you, Ed, or you, Tim, you can't control your life uh, because we know way better how you should live your life to you know, make this planet a better place to live on, right? That's, that's all the ideas where it comes from, but it's in their own picture. Right. Yeah, that's right. That somebody has to do it, and you're too damn stupid, so it'll be us. And, yeah, yeah. And, let's, and let's also just remind people the Red Pill Conference, which is October 10th and 11th down in Jekyll Island, Georgia. So the scene of the crime, we're going back to take over the place, to take it away from the bankers. But anyway, so you guys can get your tickets at Red Pill, uh, redpillexpo.org uh, and search Red, Red Pill in your search engine. Try not to use Google if you can. And, um, and we hope to see everybody down there. I know, unfortunately, Josh and John can't make it there because of the restrictions of getting in and out of the country during the, you know, the land of the free over here when we're not allowed to travel. But I'm out in Arizona, so I'm actually probably planning on driving over so I don't have to wear a mask. <laughs> but, I, but I think we'd be, you know, sort of remiss to, you know, if we didn't, you know, point out, you know, obviously last night was the, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So if we wanted to see how this election cycle get any crazier, well, you know, just, you know, things just got amped up to 11. So I decided that I would... Uh, against my better judgment that I would go and turn on CNN just to see what they had to say, which I never watched TV, but I, I, I had an idea that they were going crazy. And within one second of turning it on, they were talking about, it was Don Lemon talking about expanding the Supreme Court and that that should be held over the head of uh, Donald Trump. And if he dares to go nominate somebody that, that the Democrats are to come in to expand the Supreme Court. And I, and I know that actually, isn't that actually how they got the new deal passed way back in the day. It was something where they were threatening to, if it's this one congressman or senator didn't vote in favor of the new deal, that FDR was saying, okay, well, we're going to have, you know, six new Supreme Court justices or something like that. And, and just to see the level of uh, brazenness that they've gotten to, uh, you know, I could see all these different scenarios unfolding where there all of a sudden there may be no one, that no one knows who's elected. And then, you know, it takes, you know, then it goes to Supreme Court and maybe the Supreme Court's tied four to four. And as they're trying to figure it out, it ends up going to be, you know, Speaker Nancy Pelosi ends up temporarily becoming president or maybe Mitch McConnell. And Josh and I weren't, Josh Sigerson and I weren't, uh, we were talking about this last night, we weren't sure. He was saying it would be Mitch McConnell in that 
scenario. And I was saying it probably would be Nancy Pelosi, but it's just this crazy world. And, and how do you think that that's going to, you know, amp things up in this election cycle? And, and, and do you think it's going to get to the point where it's going to be a contested election? And, and do you see some crazy scenario where it's, you know, Pelosi is temporary president or Mitch McConnell? And, and at this point, you know, anything I feel like is, you know, fair game and how nuts things have been in 2020. Well, I think it's clear that I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. So it would be just raw opinion. Okay. And uh, I really don't even have an opinion. All I know is that the the more confusion and the more wild the options are, the better it is for the opposition. Because all of these options and, and calamitous outcomes, if they're not designed to do it, they certainly accomplish it anyway. And they drive people into a state of confusion and uh, uncertainty and inaction. What, what are we going to do? Well, I guess we better wait mm -hmm. and find out what happens. See, that's what yeah. they love. They love everybody say, well, let's wait and see what happens. Well, we know what's going to happen <laughs> if we just wait and see. And so I, I really think that's part of the plan is just to have so many things buzz in our, on our heads that we just don't know what to do. And especially if we rely on our, our boob tube to tell us what's going on, <laughs> it, the confusion is only going to get worse. So I really don't know, except it's... Uh, I know what the master plan is. At least I think I know what the master plan is so that whatever happens has to support that. The master plan is to have so much fear on the part of the voters and the part of the citizenry in general that they will call for martial law. That's the master plan in my mind. There's no question about that. So everything that will happen, I predict, will support that goal. It may be different than what we can conceive of right now, but that will what it will that is what it will support: the creation of fear, confusion, and calling for martial law, so that whoever whoever actually puts martial law into operation will be considered as a hero. Yeah, I and, think. And, and, I, sorry. Yeah. I think it might be Hillary Clinton that's going to do that. You know, think about the, <laughs> I just like to be funny with this, but, you know, I, I made a bet with Tim way back and said, so you know, Hillary Clinton's going to get in there and, you know, get elected president one time because look at now, you know, you had Biden and uh, Harris, you know, running, but uh, suddenly they're in the White House, you know, and of course Hillary Clinton said that she'll lend her uh, knowledge and be able to work with, uh, you know, the, the White House, of course. Uh, and suddenly, you know, maybe uh, Hillary Clinton is in the White House and, uh, you know, something happens and then suddenly she's the only one left and uh, maybe she becomes president. <laughs> but it's just like the, the world has kind of gone a little bit in, in, insane. And But that's where they thrive, where, you know, how you have all this craziness happening and, and nobody understands what's going to be next. And, and people are just paralyzed with fear because they're hiding in their homes, especially now with, you know, the virus and, and everything it's it's really scaring a lot of people and i i see that here you know we went from having no basically no people wearing masks to now like through uh, our local uh, media you know every single day pushing that idea to now having maybe like 60 70 even 80 percent some places so you're, you're really seeing you know that they're really trying to push that uh you know fair because that's how they thrive as you said uh, you know they, they really uh, are very successful at you know when when, when you scare something, it's like scaring a goat, you know, get paralyzed and it does nothing. It just, you know, lays on the side. And, and that's almost what you get a feeling of what's happening uh, all the time. I, I had a, another little point here that I was going to ask you, Ed, because um, 
you know, the, the, the Fed just recently came out and said to... Well, John, can I make, can I make one more point? Can I dovetail? Oh, sure, yeah, 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 go ahead. yeah, go ahead, Tim. So, uh, so when the game plan is to get us into martial law and into, you know, one world currency and, you know, everything that you've been predicting for years, but at this point, does it even matter if it's Trump or Biden? Because I feel like the powers that be are going to try to push this, whether it's either one. And at, at this point, I mean, I think a lot of people would probably want to hear your prediction, even though it probably doesn't matter anyways, because either way, the they them those are going to push us to martial law and enslavement anyways but you know do you have a do you think it's going to go one way or the other trump versus biden i know it's well, impossible to predict and yeah it's uh, the question what does it matter one way or the other i think it matters immensely because uh if if mr trump is the one that calls for martial law then all of his present supporters are paralyzed <laughs> they'll have to go along with it because he's their yeah. man yeah. And of course, the other side will go for it because they they want it anyway. Of course, yeah. <laughs> when I say the other side, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about those ten thousand or five thousand crazies in the streets that we always see on our television. I'm not talking about that minuscule little staff of people that receive paychecks. I'm talking about the the um, you know, the run of the mill liberals or or left wingers who you know think that that socialism is probably okay. I'm I'm talking about those people will will probably object, uh, you know, because everybody will object uh, to martial law unless they think it's in their own best interest and their own protection. That's why they have to have violence so that when it when they try and install it, people will be grateful for it. So I think it makes a big difference who calls for it. Yeah. If you can imagine Biden in the White House and he calls for martial law, what, ha what do you think all the Trump supporters would do? Well, they'd oh. be up and down. Then, no way, no way, no way. I mean, it would be horrible. It would be yeah. really opposition. But if their man does it, oh, well, I guess it's okay. I guess it's a good thing. Thank God. Couldn't, it, couldn't agree probably, with you more. Yeah, yeah I think they probably like the Trump scenario, right? Because then if Trump does it, then, you know, it's a, he gets quieted down all his, <laughs> all those crazy gun, gun owners and all these crazy uh, right-wing nuts that's yep. out there, right? So I, mm -hmm. I, I think that probably would be the most beneficial for them. But, uh, you know, this, this is... Uh, uh, you're just up in the air and who knows what's going to happen over the next, you know, couple of months here as, uh, as things, you know, in the economy really is worsening. Like I, I have a feeling like the, uh, that, you know, I, I have a questioner that um, I've been thinking about a lot and it's, you know, the recent decision that, you know, the Fed, Jerome Powell suddenly came out and said that, oh, we're going to keep interest rates low until 2023. <laughs> so what's happening until 2023? How come you're so certain, you know, that you're going to, Put it towards 2023, and I, uh, and also that you know they they put out a new policy. They're not going to you know keep that two percent uh, inflation target anymore. They said that oh we're just going to average out the inflation now. So I, I just thought you know it'd be interesting to see what your thoughts were on that because uh, uh, you know who and it seems similar with others like Gates and others are coming with 2022-2023 as a a potential time of you know that oh this is going to all you know be be past us at that time and everything's going to be good. Uh, what is your thoughts? Ed? Well, I don't think there's an absolute number. I don't think no. there ever has been. Yeah. I, it seems to me like they're, they're moving their deadlines constantly. Yeah. I think it's already uh, past their original deadline. I, I'd like to think that people like you and me and others and alternative media who are speaking out on this issue might have had something to do with slowing down the process. Um, maybe not, but I think it has. And if we continue to ramp up our activities and our, our audiences, 
I think we can slow it down further and eventually bring it to a stop and then eventually reverse it completely, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't think there's a, I don't go by those numbers. It could be, I mean, they could change their mind tomorrow and say, look, um, this uh, message is getting out. We've got, to, we can't wait around any longer. Tomorrow at noon is when we go for whatever we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to drop an A-bomb on Cincinnati and blow it up and that'll do it. Everybody will be so scared after that. There'll be anybody who will question anything we're doing now, uh, we'll put them in prison or shoot them on site. You know, something like that. I think they might try and accelerate it with some very dramatic event that would just scare the dickens out of everybody and that would be the end of it. Yeah, no, definitely. It's uh, uh, something like that. You've got to remember now we went to the, the whole COVID crisis. We had a pandemic, uh, you know, that started and that, that scared a lot of people. You know, there was 60 million people that was going to die from this. Um, I think we're like whatever, 1 million, but that's with, you know, a whole bunch of other people with so many different uh, cases. Dying like of they, other they had the underlying thing. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's really like, it's just that fear mongering to really, because it's, as you said, you know, that fear is what drives, you know, humanity. And we're, we got to remember we're as humans, we're built to run from fear, uh, not to be fearful of, you know, things and, and, uh, and try to avoid any cause of, you know, uncomfort at all. And, and I think that's where it comes down with that, you know, aspect. They're really good at playing that innate, you know, uncontrollable fear in people that, you know, we actually like through, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of years that, you know, we, yeah, humans have been able to, uh, uh, to build up because that's how we, you know, we ran away from things that tried to kill us <laughs> kind of thing. So, well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a good instinct. It's a good thing we yeah. have it. Um, <laughs> big question is what we do with it. Do yeah. We just yield to it and let it take over or do we, do we try and control it and realize that it under some circumstances, it could be our enemy like yeah. now. And so, and I, so I've got to ask with, uh, you know, this whole pandemic going on and, and in my opinion, it was really just an, an excuse. Uh, you know, we're, we just passed the one year anniversary of the repo markets blowing up. It was the 17th of last year when the overnight market started blowing up. And, and for John and I, that was really our big aha moment of, you know, something big is about to go down. And, you know, and unfortunately, you know, it didn't really, wasn't really that reported too much last year, but, you know, in essence, I really think that they used this whole pandemic as a cover to then have all the assets going, you know, the Fed now owns a third of the mortgages. You've got, uh, you know, you know, I, I, all the, uh, you know, trillions of dollars that went into the corporate bond market and even the junk bond market, and even that's all levered up. And, but no one's, no one's talking about it because it's, it's Trump is doing it. It's all part of a greater plan. He's going to bankrupt things supposedly. And so now, I mean, in my opinion, this whole thing's been used as a cover to commit a bank robbery on the American people where, Hey, we'll give you 1200 bucks. And in essence, you know, we'll then shift, you know, over $3 trillion of bad zombie corporate debt on the, the feds balance sheet. And do you think that, that this, was pandemic was was launched or you know maybe they just like Rahm Emanuel's words they just were using a crisis and not letting it go to waste uh but do you see any interconnection between the two or uh or were they just not letting a good crisis go to waste and hey well it's a good convenient excuse to let three trillion go over because now you know no one's going to say anything because Trump is in office yeah well again I'm getting tired of saying it and you're probably getting tired of hearing it that I don't really know <laughs> <laughs> but um I think that it was more like uh, not letting a good crisis go to waste. But I don't think it's strictly that way because they certainly didn't wait yeah. for it to happen. Uh, they could see it was on the horizon yeah. and they probably sat around a board, a board room at some point and said, well, now what do we do about this? What do we do about that? 
you, you've seen those, uh, you know, the simulations that they did for the coronavirus thing. I think they sat around a table. Event 201. Yep. Event 201. Yeah. Uh -huh. They probably, you know, theorized, well, what, what do we need here? What do we need there? And probably somebody said, hey, look, guys, look, this is something that would completely cover up the fact that the markets are going to crash anyway. We can blame it on the virus. Yeah, let's do that, too. And I think that's probably how it happened. Um, most of these things don't just have a single mono effect. They do cover a lot of fields. And if you just realize that crisis in general is really what they want, then anything destructive yeah. serves their purpose. It does, they don't have to understand all the ways in which it will ripple out and serve their purpose. Just the, the mere fact that it's destructive is, is, is enough. And then afterwards they can say, hmm, well, it worked out pretty well. Makes us look like we were smart. Yeah, no, and, and the other thing that's crazy, and this is touching off what John was saying with the with the Fed not raising rates until 2023. The crazy thing is now is they're trying to say that the market was going down recently, and again, not financial advice, but the market was going down because the Fed wasn't dovish enough. And it's sort of crazy that now they want to basically, I mean, and I know I was actually reprimanded for sending out an email in 2011 to a client saying that the Fed never intended to raise rates. And if you go back and look at the dot plots and for the viewers, the dot plots is where the Fed Reserve governors will give their estimation of where the rates will be both on like a one year, two year, three year in the long run. They've been so wrong. And so for me, it's like they'll say, OK, well, if we we'll at least say it's 2023. What we really mean is we're never going to raise them. But, you know, if we just keep telling you go negative increments. Yeah. And, and so it's crazy to see people like Neil Kashikari coming out and saying that, hey, you know, that I dissent because we're not dovish enough. And so do you see negative us going to negative interest rates? And, and, and for you, are you sort of bewildered that we're even at this point now where people are even considering negative interest rates and it's not even that much of a tinfoil hat type, you know, topic now that uh, things have devolved so much? No, I'm not surprised at that because I, if people can be sold all of the absurdities that they have been sold, they can be sold anything, you know. If they, if they were to say that, uh, that the uh, second coming is underway right now, look in the sky, people <laughs> would see it and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. But, um, yeah, I think that the uh, negative interest rates have been on the agenda for the banking system for a long, long time. Yeah. And unless something, unless they switch over completely to a digital currency faster than they had anticipated doing so, where they have the ability to control the entire money supply and there's no way to get to escape it at all, and they can, they can collect their taxes and their fees directly from your account without you even having to endorse the check, uh, then they might uh, skip the negative interest rates. Yeah. But uh, in the absence of that happening real fast, I would see negative interest rates happening yeah. in the near yeah. future. Actually, Ed, on that point, um, I don't know if you ever read the book, uh, The Curse of Cash by Kenneth Brogoff, you know, former IMF, uh, uh, head of the IMF. And actually in that book, he calls for, you know, cashless, but he also wants negative interest rates to force velocity, he says, into the economy you know, basically taxing you. Yeah, and he was talking about 5%, 6% in that book, negative interest rates in order to force you to spend your money because you don't want to have your money in your account if, and you can't take it out, right? You can't hold it in cash. That, that was the big thing, you know, they had negative yeah. rates in Sweden yeah. and Switzerland and other places. Actually, people took up money, stole cash and gold and precious metals together in the vaults uh, because actually cash yields zero or like it, it's still bad, but it's, you know, it's not yielding negative, <laughs> right? And, yeah. uh, you know, right. It's, it's just insane. And now, of course, the pension funds like CPP, Air in Canada and the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, all these 
big funds are, are struggling because now where, where's the stock market going to go? And then on top of that, you know, they, they are used to holding, you know, corporate yields. But the problem is in Germany, for example, every single government bond is under and in negative territory. So who wants to invest in anything that's going to, you know, be of negative impact to them? Meanwhile, they actually have still inflation or prices going up. You know, who in their, in their most clearest mind would actually ever you know, want to invest in that, but the, they're, they're forced to invest in it because there's nothing else, right? Or you could go and get a, a Argentinian 100-year bond with a, with a great yield or Venezuelan <laughs> government bond. But, you know, they're going to actually, I don't know if you're aware, but in Venezuela right now, uh, they had the currency fail uh, called the Bolivar's Fuerte, but then uh, half a year after they actually started, uh, well, they started right away, basically, a new currency called the Bolivar Soberano, and that is hyperinflating now. So they have a double hyperinflation in Venezuela uh, because people are not stupid. You know, they're, they're not letting themselves getting hit twice with the same thing, but they, it seems like they've been pretty good here to, you know, uh, propagandize people here in, in the Western world to really embrace all of these, uh, you know, policies that they put forward that, you know, should be totally insane uh, when you look at history and if you actually cared about history whatsoever. Well, I couldn't agree more. I didn't know those details, John. That's interesting. Uh, but yeah, yeah, never, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you said that people, uh, once they've been hit, are cautious. I wish that were more true than it is. I look at the political arena. We keep falling for the same bad serve every time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That is so. That is very true. Unfortunately, I hear you. I wanted to uh, have Mr. Griffin be able to talk a little bit about his conference. I'm going to put it up on the yeah. screen right now. So if you guys go to redpillexpo.org, you can find out all the details about the Red Pill Expo. I've, I've actually have never been to one, and so I don't want to, you know, chance there being one next year. And you know, with everything going on, so you've got obviously uh, Jerry Griffin's going to be there. David Ike will be uh, answering questions. I, I, pro I don't think he'll actually be there, but it'll be probably tell. Uh, you know, conference in Mickey Willis, who is the behind the documentary Plandemic, which uh, parts one and two, which I highly recommend everyone check that out. You got Del Bigtree, Dr. Andrew Kaufman, uh, Dr. Bradford Weeks, Alex Newman, Cynthia McKinney, uh, you know, Sheriff Richard Mack, who's actually, I, I've actually have interviewed him before, great guy. Uh, John Rappaport, who he was talking about fake news before anybody. I believe his website was even called No More Fake News. Uh, and, and so do you want to, is there a, a, it seems like the theme of this year's would be more along the health uh, uh, cash or society pandemic. And, and, but can you give us a, you know, a little bit about the conference, let people know where it is, how they can buy tickets, how they can stream it and all, all, the, all the good details, sir? Sure, thank you for that. The, the theme really is red pill. And that's a good enough theme as it is. Uh, the world is full of illusions. Uh, and it seems like the aspects of our life that is more important to us are the ones that most are likely to be an illusion, if we, whether we know it or not. So that's the, always the theme of our expo is illusions of all kinds. It's not just about health or politics. To give you an example, this year we're going to have um, a very interesting um, PowerPoint presentation, I've already seen the essence of it, from a young woman who's a film producer. And the title of it, if you're ready for this one, is The, the, um, um, the Titanic Did Not Sink. You think, what? What do you mean the Titanic did not sink? Of course it sank. Everybody knows it sank. <laughs> well, it turns out the Titanic did not sink. What sank oh, was you're talking about J.P. Morgan. The Olympic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, J.P. Morgan. I heard that one. That's a big investor. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and the Olympic, the Olympic had been damaged and was no longer seaworthy. They couldn't insure her. They had to scrap the ship. It was, it was about a year old and they had to scrap this magnificent ship because they couldn't repair it uh, economically and they couldn't insure it. So Morgan and some of the others came up with the idea, well, well what we got to do is just take the name off of the Titanic and put it on the, on the Olympic, send the Olympic out, doomed though it might be, make sure she sinks and we collect the insurance on it. With, with, and, all, their, uh, with all their enemies like on the Titanic too. So like all the, a lot of like, yeah. like the Astro family, a lot of the wealthiest people in the world were on there. And I didn't know about that yeah. until you brought it up on Ernie's show the other day. Uh, and then also was it the propeller on one when they went down there, they found that the propellers were swapped. Uh, yeah, this is, yeah, the question comes out, how do they really know that that was the uh, Olympic uh, and not the Titanic? And it's, it, there's one piece of evidence among a lot of it, but there's one that's just absolutely incontrovertible. The shipyards have a permanent record of about, I think it was a month before the event, before they sailed, they swapped the propeller from the Olympic and put it on the Titanic and vice versa. So the Titanic now had the Olympic propeller on it. And this is, a rec this is in the records in the shipyards. No explanation as to why they did that. But anyway, there was the propeller on the, uh, mm -hmm. on the Olympic. Uh, yeah, on the Olympic. So when the ship sank, and many years later, the divers went down and they saw the propeller, they read the number off of the propeller, and sure enough, it's the propeller for the Titanic. Well, instead of saying, well, sure, that's the Titanic that sank, it would be true, except that we got the records that show, no, it was just the other way around. The, it was the Olympic that had the Titanic propeller on it. So uh, there you have it right there, but there's much more evidence than that. So uh, I, I shouldn't have started with that because it has nothing to do with the world events today. Yeah. But the, the, I, I, I actually thought point. about bringing that up, but I, I wanted to respect your time. And that was such an interesting uh, rabbit hole. But I, I remember I actually rewinded it when on uh, Ernest Hancock's show the other day, because I was like, well, what? I never heard that. Well, it, it points a lot of great pointers Ed, to other insurance claims, 9-11 and you know, the World Trade Center, yeah. all that stuff. So you know, all these Thank different you. things have a lot of connections. And so it's very important to understand understand them and, and uh, try to, you know, be aware of them, right? Yes, but let's face it that most yeah. interest today is focused on the pandemic yeah. and on the violence in our streets and the economy and things like that. So that is what most of our speakers will be addressing. And you, you mentioned the names of them. We still have a, f a few more we're working with that we think we'll be able to, to bring. But these, these speakers are tops in their in their craft. And that when, when you hear these people speak, you'll be blown away by the facts they present. We are showing that on screen right now. So the viewers can see the speaker list on screen. And let me go back up to the top here. And you can go up to the top and you've got, uh, let's see, you got two weeks, six days. Wow, really coming up, really coming up soon here. And then, uh, and then you can also, you want to talk about streaming as well. So we click here, register. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, you bet. Because we know that most people cannot make the trip for one reason or another but everybody can live stream it. You can see it right in the comfort of your own home. And uh, we want people to come because this is where we start standing tall and meeting each other, forming coalitions and start to build a movement to push back against this. But if you cannot make it, then certainly make sure you see the, the live stream. It's a dirt cheap and it'll be broadcast as we go on October 10 and 11. And for 30 days thereafter, you can watch it over and over again for a whole month. And I know a lot of people are inviting their, their friends and their family over to the house and they're having little red pill parties <laughs> so they can look at it in their homes. I think it's a great idea. No, we really appreciate you putting this on too, especially- So anyway, the all of this is, uh, the entry port for that is at Red Pill Expo. 
And that's the entry point for all of this. Yes, and really appreciate you putting this on, especially in light of obviously all the, you know, unknowns that are out there that most people are canceling conferences, but, you know, who knows how much longer they're going to let us have these things. And so we're going to wrap up the live show right now. And then off the air, I want to, you know, thank you and everything. But, you know, thank you everyone who's been watching this. Make sure to hit the like button, share, uh, subscribe, because this is information they don't want us getting out. I mean, an interview with Gerald Griffin on Wham should get 50, 100,000 views, but instead it's going to get, you know, four to 8,000. So you guys can really help get around the sense by you know sharing that video liking the video all you know put it on the email list going old school because there was so much great information that mr griffin dropped today that uh, you know even my mind's blown i'm sure a lot of people got a lot of value out of everything he had to say today and i really appreciate john for hooking up the interview and for josh letting us live stream on world alternative media also make sure to check out the video that josh just shot with you last week lots of great information over there and also make sure to check out the yuri bresmanoff interview and of course, uh, where's my book? Uh, the creature. From, oh, here we go. Creatures from Jekyll Island. And then, uh, and I imagine if if you guys don't have a copy of this yet, or you do have a copy and you want to get it signed, you should probably bring a copy down to, or buy another copy, bring it down to Jekyll Island, because uh, I know I brought my copy with me to Anarchapoco, uh, hoping that I'd run into you. And actually, I ran into you backstage. But we really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you sharing all this stuff with us. I know the audience really appreciates it. And so we're gonna cut off the live stream. And uh, but no, definitely appreciate everything today, Mr. Griffin. Well, Thank you, Tim. Much appreciated. Uh, uh, see you on Jekyll Island.